Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome. We're, uh, we're, today we're going to do a, a deep dive into uh, the Entitlement Society, and uh, I'll get into the details of that in a minute. It's a, it's a big subject that affects everyone, and the more you learn about it, you begin to feel like that's the Titanic, and uh, all the other pu public policy issues we, uh, we go back and forth about are rearranging deck chairs. Uh, one of the reasons I started this show last year was that I very much enjoy, and I hope you enjoyed taking deep dives into topics that might be interesting, alarming, important, and understanding how they might affect you personally. And for, as an example of that, I uh, had a show a couple months ago, and uh, it was about China. We did three or four of them. And what I learned when, I, when we put this out there was that, A, China's a big problem. We need to be thinking about how we want to deal with China strategically. That they need not be a problem, but they could be unless we think it through. And if you go on my YouTube comments board for the shows, you'll also learn <laughs> that the Chinese, the Chinese don't like us very much. <laughs> and and uh, in fact, the most recent comment, somebody came on and they said, um, the host and the two guests will soon be arrested. <laughs> I'm not, I, I haven't figured out by, by whom I would be arrested and when or where, but it is, a, it is an indication of how they're thinking about our, our show, and I think you'd find that one interesting. Today, to help me understand entitlements, is someone, a man who knows as much about this as anyone, Jim Agresti, who founded Just Facts, which is a public policy think tank um, aimed at publishing rigorously documented facts about public policy issues. And Jim has done a lot of work on Social Security, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, entitlements programs generally. And uh, we want to learn from him. And I've got a couple things I want to share with you. And so here we go, Jim. Welcome. Bill, thanks for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here again. So you recently published a paper on, on Social Security and about how there's a lot of misunderstanding about how Social Security is funded size of the program and it uh, it's a real barrier for for reforming social security although everybody thinks that uh, that needs to happen yes i did um there's a so i love talking about this topic because there i feel like it's fruitful time because a lot of people are very misled about how it operates and i like sharing facts that tell people how it works because we're never going to solve a problem if we misdiagnose it well, how, how, is it being, how is it misunderstood? I mean, well, let me, let me start off. A lot of people have the view that you've got a Social Security account and you get a deduction from your paycheck and it goes into your Social Security account and it's got your name on it. And that's going to be invested uh, uh, for you for your old age and that's, that's part of your personal savings. And I believe that that's uh, flat wrong. Want to amplify? There's no question it's wrong, and it is very, very common. And a lot of people would object to calling Social Security an entitlement. They'll say, it's not an entitlement. The government took my money, is saving it for me, and is just giving it back to me. That is what is mine. They'll also even go as far as to say, it's not really government spending. 
again, they're, they're just kind of act, acting as caretakers for my money. But the reality is that social security is primarily a pay-as-you-go system, which means that the money you're receiving, if you're receiving, is not your money. It's money that they're taking from younger people who are working and uh, paying into the system right now. And the same applies if you're paying into the system, if you're paying payroll taxes, the government is not putting that money away. They're basically giving it out as it comes in, just like any other social, social welfare program. Well, the baby boomers are going to benefit because the, all the current taxes are going into the entitlements that they get, Social Security, Medicare. Uh, <laughs> at a personal level, I, you know, four decades ago, I heard people saying Social Security is going to go broke. It's going to go to broke, go broke. You can't count on it. You got to do something. So my personal strategy was, well, let's go to business school, get a degree in accounting and, and go into business and make some money. And I did. And so I, you know, problem solved maybe, but then four decades later, I find myself happily receiving a social security payment every month. And um, also Medicare is great. <laughs> it's hardly going, you know, it's great if you're a current recipient, but you know, a lot of older people listen to this show. Uh, I think this show should really be listened to by millennials because the odds of this kind of uh, pay as you go scheme uh, resembles an awful lot like a program that was designed by a guy named Charles, uh, what was his last name? Ponzi. Where <laughs> <laughs> you take the money from your current investors and give it to your past investors and make them think they're making money. Am I right? You're right. And you mentioned four decades ago and what the situation was then. And people were saying it's going bankrupt. It's not going to last. And proponents of the program will say, well, well, look, here it is. Yes, here it is, because they have continually raised taxes on the uh, people who are working. They've added um, income taxes on Social Security benefits to people who um, are receiving benefits but have other sources of income. They um, are transferring money from the general fund to the U.S. Treasury like they did in the recent uh, payroll tax holidays. So yeah, any program can look sustainable if you keep raising the taxes on the people who, who are paying into it. And if we don't do something about Social Security now, by the time the baby boomers are retired around 2033 and the trust fund is exhausted, you mean the last of us have retired, or the the last the last baby boomers? Yep, have okay. uh, begun have finished retiring. Yeah, that's that generation is has is start has all retired. We'd be looking at another thirty percent increase in payroll taxes to keep the program paying out full benefits. So, that's not going to happen, but be, it, because the politicians are never going to make that happen. I mean, how do we how do we how do you find the political will to do something like this? I'd say it's going to happen. And I'll tell you how it's going to happen. Older people, particularly those who are receiving Social Security and Medicare and are dependent on it, vote. They vote in massive numbers compared to younger people. And right now, you know, Social Security is referred to as the third rail of politics for that reason. Uh, older people have paid into this system their entire life that this money has been taken from them that they could have invested and done other things with. And a lot of them are dependent upon the program. And if you try to say, well, we're not going to pay full benefits, anyone who, who did that uh, would be political suicide. So they're going to do one of two things. 
They're going to either increase payroll taxes or a combination of two things, or they're going to borrow the money and push it on to further generations. But to say that the benefits will be cut just like that, I don't see it happening just from a political perspective. So you don't see benefits cut. I don't either. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, one of the other things that goes, goes along with Social Security, Social Security has been with us since the recession, Great, uh, Great Depression. Was it 1935, 1937, when Social Security first kicked in? Uh, And it went along as probably one of the only significant federal entitlement programs or or transfer programs until the mid-60s, when we had the Great Society. And that launched the Medicare and the Medicaid program. And, you know, the, the word entitlement, I I didn't even come into the English language in in this sense until 1942 when some bright, uh, bright politician, I think, figured out, uh, you know, how can we create a very attractive word for something which is basically going to going to be another tax on us. So they called it entitlements and entitlements have just exploded in the last 50 years. If you count all, you know, six or seven major programs, uh, Medicare is Medicare is not even, uh, uh, it's not more fiscally sound than, than, than uh, Social Security, is it? It's basically in the same position. You know, there are different ways of measuring the financial condition of these programs, many different ways. But I think the most honest and intuitive way is something called a closed group obligation, which, by the way, approximates the manner in which the government forces private businesses to report their finances. They have to use these general, generally accepted accounting principles. And what it means is this. Let's look at everyone involved in the program at the moment, taxpayers, beneficiaries, and let's estimate how much in taxes they're going to pay over their lives, how much in benefits they're going to receive over their lives, and look at the difference. And that approximates the burden passed on to future generations. You know what the difference is for Social Security? It's about $32 trillion. Wow. People have a hard time wrapping their head around a figure that big, but it's, it's much bigger than our national debt. And it amounts to $187,000 for every person currently paying Social Security taxes. That is what the program, as it now stands, is passing on to ne- the next generations. Well, the the... That's just Social Security. Uh, yeah. So that, that's a stunner. Our, 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 we we call our national debt. I think it's now twenty-two trillion dollars. Uh, it, it seems to me, and the reason I think this is such a concern to everyone is that we're running these huge budget deficits, and I don't think most people appreciate what percentage of our federal budget goes towards transfer payments, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid. Social Security, disability, whatever. You and I were talking about this before the show. Why don't you, why don't you do the math? Sure. So in 1960, 18% of the federal government spending was for social programs. In uh, 1960, how, about a quarter? 18%. 18%, okay. So about a fifth. Less than a fifth, okay. Right, so about a fifth. These are, you know, the wide variety of programs generally favored by people on the left that, that socialize uh, the risk of living, whether it's old age, whether it's your health, whether it's if you lose a job, if you don't have money for food, these, these are essentially the progressive agenda items. So in 1960, 18%, 
Come to 2016, which is the latest data from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, it's up to 63%. It's, it's more than tripled. Uh, <laughs> so that means that the federal government is not, you know, people talk about we're spending money on the military, we're you know, doing infrastructure, things like that. Doesn't seem like there's a lot of room to do that if we've got, uh, if we've got that kind of uh, you know, transfer payments. It seems like the federal government just basically turned into one, pay, one big pay, pay agent. Is that? Uh... Someone uh, 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 humorously described it as a retirement plan with a, with a military, as our federal government. Oh, is that like, yeah, that's right. That's the um, way they used to describe so, uh, General Motors, a retirement plan with a, with a couple automobile uh, companies underneath it. <laughs> <laughs> So right now, uh, military spending is approximately 18% of all federal spending. If you, and that, if you go back to 1960, the military was 53% of all federal spending. So social programs and the military have essentially swapped places. I've got a really neat chart on our website at justfacts.com. Click on national debt and causes of the national debt. And uh, you can see the change over time. It is really dramatic. Yeah, I should have mentioned that. You, we, you can be found, and uh, you could probably just you know, watch or, or look at the website where you listen to this. It's justfacts.com, and you've got all this data on there. It is, and, and it's all documented, rigorously documented, but with credible primary sources. But one of the things we do that's unique is we dig back to the original source of the data. We, we don't uh, go to someone's interpretation of it, we go straight to the data source. And the, I think I'm looking here in my, through my pile of papers in front of me, because we did a little research on this before the show, but the, but the percentage of the uh, federal budget or the percentage of GDP that was uh, spent on, on defense in 1960 was about 7%. And even with the Iraq war and the war in Afghanistan, I think in 2000, 16, that percentage of GDP had dropped to about 3%. So people talk about military spending, uh, but at the same time, the percentage of GDP that's devoted to federal transfer payments, I, you probably have that number. I think it's gone from like 13% to 30%. Does that sound? I don't know off the top of my head. That does seem a little high though. I don't think it's quite that high. Just take the, the defense figure and multiply it by three or 3.5, and there's your figure. So it's probably about 15, 14%. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's a big number. Now, I, 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 the political problem here interests me because we've been talking about Social Security and we're talking about Medicare, but some really big programs that have started up have been disability and, uh, uh, let's see, uh, the SNAP, the food stamp program, other things like that. And if you look at the, these entitlement programs, and you look at a map of the United States and you do it by county, by county, by county, uh, the hundred largest, the, the, the states which use the most transfer payments, entitlement payments, uh, or receive the most, uh, the, of the top hundred states, which were receiving on average, I think about 55% of their income from entitlements, 75% of them voted uh, overwhelmingly for Donald Trump, their red states. And 
when you think about the political issues, you know, Trump country is large, is rural in large part, and so are the recipients of these uh, programs, and they're red. And so, whatever you think about Donald Trump, and I think he's doing a pretty good job in many ways. One of the reasons I don't see him trying to go after these programs is a as voters are big beneficiaries, even though they talk about smaller government, and and that's both in the in the rural areas but it's also the retiree class which i think voted for him about 60 60 percent so as you pointed out they're not likely to vote to cut their social security um if i'm a millennial i would start trying to figure out how to uh, <laughs> how to do something about this because it's not a it, it, this, this this train is not going to end up with anything other than a in a, in a wreck status hmm. so early on in trump's campaign he made very clear and emphasized, I'm not going to touch Social Security and Medicare. You know, I think he has a very good uh, gut instincts about politics and realized, hey, let's just take these things off the table. So uh, it is correct that a, a lot of older people who are receiving these voted for Trump. But I think it's a mistake to break down these demographics and political trends by state because within states, there's a lot of variation. So what you have is a lot of the people receiving means-tested welfare, they're generally voting for Democratic candidates, and there happens to be a lot of those people in the poorer states. But I think if you were to drill down to a, a county or a district level, I think you'd see more that the people who voted for Trump, uh, middle class, upper middle class, are, are not receiving a lot of these programs, except for the retirees. Uh, most of the blue-collar workers are not getting much of this, although they will uh, as they get older. The uh, well, that that well. So, what do we conclude that he, that he would find a mandate if we wanted to go after this? Because this is by, by far and away, as I said at the outset, I think our biggest biggest problem. I mean, you know, politicians want to please their voters to hold power, and you find. Um, Marco Rubio now wants to provide uh, another entitlement program, retirement benefits for family leave. Now, regardless of the merits of people needing leave, this is a program which we can, and he wants to pay for it through taking money from Social Security. Uh, but what will happen, in fact, is, is uh, we'll end up with this program, but then we won't end up taking anything from Social Security, so we'll just be piling on. Uh, and so you got a Republican who's all for an entitlement, and, and he'll pr probably find others that will support him in this. And the other things I've noticed about politicians, I think I mentioned that I, I studied accounting. Most of them don't do math very well. <laughs> they, don't, they don't really understand the spreadsheet that this, uh, if, you, if you run these numbers out, it, it, it ends very badly. And the other thing is that short, you know, politicians are so short-term, we're talking about a long-term problem, um, that I don't, I don't find the political capital or political will to address. Now you've been thinking about this a lot. Do you, how, how would that happen? Well, how do we address it or what are some of the dynamics at play? Okay, we've identified about? problems. I've always liked to find lines of action. I mean, is there, okay. is, is there anything we can do anything, anything that would be a, uh, a policy strategy? I've got some personal strategies I think people should pay attention to, but if you're, if you were king, what would you do? Gotcha. So for, I just want to say, I think you're right on about the uh, potential for these programs to grow. Uh, when LBJ started Medicare, he said the most it's going to cost you 
is a uh, dollar per person per month. Yeah, that, how'd, that, how'd that turn out? <laughs> now it's essentially unlimited because they sure. took the cap off the payroll tax. Um, and also, you know, long term and, and politicians' ability to do math, you know, one of the big problems with both of these programs is that people are living longer, which is great. Hey, it's modern technology, it's progress. But these programs- yeah, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting years. people living shorter lives would be the good solution. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the government, from a financial perspective, has a, a stake in you dying young, right? Yeah. It's less money they have to pay you. <laughs> so, you know, that's not a good dynamic to have in, in play there uh, for whatever it's worth. But, um, you know, the average person, the average male, a 65-year-old male, now receives Medicare- for 41% longer than he did in 1965 when the program got started. So one of the simple things we can do to, to help both of these programs is index it to the average life expectancy of a 65-year-old. Now, people who are opponents of this will say, wait a minute, uh, you know, you can't do that because, you know, the, the, uh, the birth rate of, you know, people, infant mortality has gone down and we have to look at, you know, it's not a fair measure of, of life expectancy. Right, right. They're not hearing what I'm saying. I'm saying the average life expectancy of a 65-year-old. We have data on that. We index it to that. That would resolve a major part of the problem. Another thing that could be done and has been done in dozens of countries is to give Social Security an element of personal ownership. See, people think the money's theirs, the government saved it for them, and that's why they support the program, but the program doesn't work that way, and it could work that way. It can be a gradual transition, and what we can do is instead of the government taking the money and spending it, it would actually go in a guarded account that we could invest within certain confines that say, well, you can't toss all the money into of a lotto or gold or whatever you want to do would be a controlled fund or a series of funds to some degree. And these have worked out tremendously well in other countries. Why hasn't that happened here? I think it's a political issue. When uh, Bush proposed it, when he was president, the second Bush, you know, the Democrats went out and said, oh, he wants to gamble your money in the stock market. And uh, people just collapse. It just couldn't get any traction. But they're not understanding how it works. Uh, <laughs> there's risk inherent in everything. If the stock market collapsed, government income would collapse. And it did during the Great Recession. Uh, there's risk inherent in everything. But if you look at the market over the long term, which is what this would be, a 40-year period, uh, the return on investment is so much better than what Social Security gives people even under the worst 40-year scenario, the, the risk is much greater keeping the program as it is than moving to a system like this. Well, the Social Security system is based on no return at all except compounding for inflation. I mean, essentially, it's, there's, no, there's no buildup of your capital based on some sort of market return. And you're right. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea if you've got a long-term investment portfolio equities are by far the best place to be. I mean, you may have a year like 2008 where you want to go shoot yourself because you've lost half its value, but then you look at what's happened since 2008. The S&P just enjoyed it, just celebrated its longest uh, bull market run in history um, just, just recently in, uh, in, in August of 2018. And 
you know, the market, that equity market will go down, but it's going to come back up. I think average returns have been what, about seven, six, seven percent, eight percent by far uh, beating bonds and, and, uh, and commodities. So I'm with you on that. But, but I remember Bush pushing out that strategy or that policy, I think it was 2004. And he didn't really articulate it very well, didn't sell it very well. And he just kind of set it out there and let it, let it, uh, let it simmer and nothing, nothing happened. He didn't have the, he didn't seem to have the political will to want to make it happen personally. And I wish he had. Yeah. And, and he, we all know he wasn't great in front of a camera. So he, he didn't articulate a lot of things very well. Yeah, but he was working uh, so. hard. He was always working hard. Remember, he was always working hard. <laughs> you got that Bush head shake when you did that. Yeah, we've been working hard. We've been working hard. I'm the decider. <laughs> I, I think he didn't. I mean, he's not one of my favorite presidents, but that's, that's, that's a subject for a different day. Uh, so, you know, one of the things I think about this is listening to people. If, if you're listening to this, you're wondering, okay, well, this guy, these guys are talking about some sort of doomsday scenario for the financial commitments that we've made to people and can't keep. I, I call this the, the, a, a bubble in, in government promises. I mean, we've, the government has promised us all these programs and they're working now because we're doing pay as a go deal, but uh, it's really not sustainable. So. As an individual, I, I, what, what would you do if you're, if you're, let's say, Jim Agresti 40 years ago and you know Social Security is going to go broke? What's your personal strategy? I think I probably would have done what you did, which is uh, <laughs> go after money <laughs> and, and establish some sort of security for my family. Um, you know, even if you have a lot of money, a scenario like this can turn really uh, ugly pretty quick. Uh, government has in the past had very high confiscatory tax rates for certain people in certain situations. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, you know, the 1% that people, uh, the government, you know, the media and, and the Democrats harp upon, uh, they're an easy target politically because they're only 1% of the electorate. And the media makes that very easy by constantly misleading people about the contribution of, of the 1% to taxes. Uh, they trot out uh, misleading figures that don't count all taxes or all income. And really, when you look at the effective tax rate, all taxes divided all income, the 1% pays about 34% of their income in federal taxes as opposed to 12% by the middle class. So, but you know, Just Facts every year does a poll of public, poll, poll of public, uh, public knowledge about public policy. And this is one of the figures, uh, the facts that the public is totally misinformed on. In upwards of about 68% of the general public thinks the middle class pays a higher effective tax rate than the upper 1%. It's dead wrong, it's not even close but yet the media continually propagates that narrative. So you could sock away a ton of money, put yourself in a great place, but when uh, the stuff hits the fan, the electorate will turn on you because they're miseducated about this issue. They see you as a cash cow and, and they'll come after your money. They've done it before. And I think that's where this is headed. So even if you, uh, you know, invest and save and put away money for a rainy day, it might not be there. Well, I'm more optimistic. I, th I think probably your personal strategy still ought to be get out of debt, 
save your money. And my other personal strategy is invest in yourself. In other words, get, get, get yourself educated and get yourself some, some marketable talents. Uh, and uh, there was a saying about the Jews exiting uh, Europe when fleeing from the Nazis in the 30s. And they, one of them said, uh, the only thing we could take with us was what we could put in a toothpaste tube and what was between our ears. Our, our, our talent and our brains and you know they've 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 done well they've prospered but I, I think of wealth as really what you know how to do and so if I'm 35 years old and listening to this and I'm hearing these two old guys talking about how uh, you know there's going to be confiscation that sort of thing I'd, I'd invest in, in in marketable strategies that lately thrive in uh, in any political climate but but getting back to your one of the points you made the distortions in this 1% world, this income inequality world are, are astonishing. When you look at what our topic is, when we measure income inequality, and Phil Graham wrote a piece on this in the journal not too long ago, we use something called the Gini coefficient, which is the ratio of, I think it's if, if, if everybody earns the same amount, as it, it's zero. If, if one person earns everything, it's, it's one. And so by that measure, I think the U.S., according to the conventional calculation, is about 0.38 and puts us very high in terms of income inequality. And then you dig into that, and it turns out that the calculations don't include um, the entitlement programs. It doesn't. It excludes Medicare and Medicaid, and it also includes another federal redistribution programs and. If you take a look at the total, it's about $1.3 trillion that isn't included in people's income that's coming to them through an entitlement pro program. And if you, if you look at our Gini coefficient, if you add that in, um, we're below Japan in terms of income equality. Uh, we're below Australia. We're below the United Kingdom and uh, really much, pretty much on a par with Canada. So this, these, these, these facts that people use in public policy are not Wait, I, sh I should give a guy called Jim Agresti a call. A guy's got a firm called Just Facts and get it straightened out. Were, were you aware of that uh, of that distortion? Yes, um, and there's another really important distortion. By the way, what you're saying reminds me of something that my uh, high school statistics teacher said on the first day of class, which is that statistics don't lie, but liars make statistics. <laughs> and, 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 um, and politicians. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, what you say is true. Um, there's another factor too. Even if you include uh, transfer payments and entitlement programs and uh, everything, benefits, and, and you look at all, there, there has been a pronounced increase in the Gini coefficient for households over these past decades. And when you chart it out, which we've done in our research on uh, income, wealth, and poverty, you see a pronounced rise. However, that's for households. Okay, and we've had a tremendous shift in this country in households uh, separating, uh, divorces, single family right, households, right, right, yeah. uh, whatever it may be, people living longer on their own as singles. And when you look at the Gini coefficient for individuals, okay, which is really what matters here, uh, it hasn't changed at all. It's been essentially flat. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, I see these charts in the media, I see them put out by think tanks. Oh, it's so horrible. It's getting worse and worse. Right. I hear it from politicians, but they only give you half the story. 
and sometimes half the truth can be a total lie. Those sound like, that sounds like a very wise, wise statement to end on. Uh, Jim, where can we find you? At justfacts.com? Yep, you can find us there. And we also have a fact check website, justfactsdaily.com, where we hold the media and academia and also these so-called fact checkers to account because a lot of times uh, what they're doing is not really looking at facts, but calling up an expert, experts say, that happens to agree with a certain viewpoint. That's not facts, that's not facts, that's opinions. Well, thank you. I wanna just wrap up here. My, my takeaway is that we've got a, we, we, we can agree that entitlements have exploded in the last 50 years. Um, we're not paying for them with savings, we're paying for them with huge deficits. And that the amount that's going to these amount to two thirds or by some estimates, almost three quarters of the total federal budget. Um, the political will to, to change it is, is really not there. And, and, you know, my conclusion is you need a personal strategy to deal with this. I mean, we all ought to become activists and get the politicians to do the right thing, but uh, um, be prepared for tough times when the, when the numbers no longer work for everyone. Anything makes, to add to Jim? Makes perfect sense, Bill. I thank you for this time. It was great to be thank here. Thank you. Yeah. And I thought it was a very meaningful uh, discussion. Very interesting. Jim, well, we'll have you back. There are a lot of facts that we got to dig into. So thanks for, thanks for your work on Social Security and Entitlements today. Pleasure. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites, and Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to amazon.com apply. That's amazon.com apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.